welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Linda Bragan. I'm a senior attorney with the Environmental Law Institute and a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt University Law School. Today we'll be discussing a really clever cutting-edge proposal from two leading professors in land use law and energy law, Professors Chris Serkin and Jim Rossi. In their article entitled Energy Exactions, published in the Cornell Law Review, they propose that local governments impose fees aimed at addressing the energy impacts of residential and commercial development. But before we introduce our guests, I want to note that with me today are four stellar Vanderbilt Law students, third-year students Marissa Pappenfest and Charlie Spencer Davis, and second-year law students Connor Farley and Brian Davidson, and they'll be posing questions to our guests today. But first, I want to hand it over to Marissa to provide a little context for why we're here today to discuss this particular article. Marissa? Hi, thank you everyone so much for joining us today. My name is Marissa Pappenfuss, and I am the executive editor of the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, also called LPAR. First, I'd just like to thank our co-sponsors for this event, the Energy and Environmental Law Society, and also our amazing faculty advisors, Professors Vandenberg and Bregan. So before we dive into the discussion today, I just want to give everyone a really brief overview of what LPAR is and what we do. So LPAR is a joint publication between Vanderbilt Law School and the Environmental Law Institute, based out in D.C., uh, in the publication, we identify the year's best policy and legal solutions to the most pressing environmental problems. Uh, we also organize our annual conferences, which happen in D.C. and Nashville, and this is where the authors that we select to publish present their research and discuss it with experts in the field. And LPAR has three goals. First, we take ideas from the legal academy and distribute them among practitioners and policymakers. Second, we encourage academics to engage in scholarship that contains practical proposals. And lastly, we highlight scholarship that is feasible, creative, persuasive, and impactful. So the 22 students in LPAR select the articles that we publish over the course of the semester with input from ELI, the professors, our faculty advisors, and our advisory board, which is comprised of expert environmental lawyers, both in the private and the public sector. And the article we're going to discuss today was actually selected for our 2020 LPAR publication, which is in the Environmental Law Reporter. And if you want any more information about LPAR, please visit our LPAR website, either on the Vanderbilt website or the ELI website. Thanks, Marissa. Well, we're ready to start the discussion, so I'm going to hand it over to Brian Davidson to introduce our guests. All right. Thank you, for Pro Professor Bregan. Uh, my name is Brian Davidson, and I'm a second-year student at Vanderbilt Law School, current member of LPAR. Uh, today, we have the privilege of speaking with Professors Jim Rossi and Christopher Serkin regarding their recent article, Energy Exactions. Uh, Jim Rossi is the Associate Dean for Research and Judge D.L. Lanson Chair in Law at Vanderbilt Law School and is nationally recognized for his research on administrative and energy law topics. Christopher Serkin is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the Elizabeth H. and Granville S. Ridley Jr. Chair in Law at Vanderbilt Law School and his provocative scholarship addresses local governments, property theory, the takings clause, land use regulations, and eminent domain. Professors, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Before we delve into the details of your proposed energy exactions idea, do you mind explaining what exactly is an exaction and how have exactions typically been used in development? Absolutely. So exactions are increasingly a part of the land use landscape in this country. And you can think of it this way. 
There's no question that many developments, especially large-scale developments, impose some costs on the municipality in which they are located. These are burdens often, say, on the school district, or burdens on roads or transportation infrastructure, or burdens on wastewater or water systems. Many local governments impose exactions, which is a general term, essentially to ask developers or demand from developers money to compensate the municipality for the burdens that the development will impose on the municipality. So exactions then are a general term that includes impact fees, fees in lieu of dedication and other forms. Sometimes they're negotiated, sometimes they are legislated, but the basic idea is that this is money that developers pay to account for the costs that the development will impose. All right, and could you also describe the current energy planning process and some of the problems or inefficiencies with that process? Certainly. The energy law planning process is complex and varied across different jurisdictions, but I'll just try to distill it down to a couple of essential points. Um, first of all, the energy planning process is very focused on um, expanding supply with the expectation that we're going to meet whatever demand is needed, right? So it, it, it seems to take demand as a given and focus on then identifying sources of supply for that energy that can be built. I'm from the state of Iowa. Um, think of the movie Field of Dreams. If we build it, they will come. Um, it's almost the, 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 the reverse uh, of that. If, if they come, we will build it, right? If there are uses of energy, we will find a way to expand capacity and expand the grid to meet those uses, whatever those uses are, right? And the energy planning process is largely devised around that kind of a planning approach. Um, another thing I want to emphasize about the energy planning process is because it's focused very much on expanding capacity to meet whatever the expectations are for the use or demand uh, of energy, it seems to overly emphasize focusing on the production of energy and tends to downplay or underemphasize things like conservation, efficiency, and ways that we might be able to reduce demand. So those are a couple of uh, the ways that there might be deficiencies in the existing energy planning process. Great. Well, that, um, that really helps lay the foundation. And now we can sort of segue into talking about your proposal. And I'm going to hand that off to Charlie Spencer-Davis. Great. Thanks, Professor Bregan. Uh, I wanted to ask, what makes an energy exaction distinguishable from those other types of exactions like impact fees or on-site dedications? So the distinction between energy exactions and other forms of exactions is simply their purpose and use. They are otherwise indistinguishable, and indeed that I think is the power of our proposal. So our proposal is to force developers to pay an exaction, say an impact fee, for the burdens of the development on the energy grid. Great, thank you. And so just kind of doubling up on that, so it would fall into its own separate bucket. It is not necessarily a new type of exaction. The form is identical to any other kind of exaction. We imagine it imposed as a kind of legislated impact fee at the local level. The purpose, though, is distinct from any current exactions of which we are aware. Great. 
And then how, how new is this idea of energy exactions? Is it something that municipalities are, are not really already doing? So municipalities really are not doing this. And I think one of the puzzles that uh, Jim and I encountered is, is why. Um, and we think perhaps local governments aren't aware that they have the power to impose an exaction for this purpose. Um, there has been some other writing in this space that I think we should at least highlight. Other people have proposed exactions for things like wetlands destruction, even carbon emissions. But we want to tie exactions specifically to burdens on the energy grid because we think that's much more consistent with the conventional uses of exactions. I'd, I'd be happy to add something uh, to that. I think from the current perspective of energy planning, energy burdens in particular are a hidden cost for many local governments. Effectively, most local governments have contracted out the supply of energy. So, for example, if Nashville were to expand um, its population, expand its various uses of land to become more energy intensive, it's assumed that energy would be provided off the grid, uh, supplied primarily by the Tennessee Valley Authority. So do local governments then necessarily need the motivation to implement these energy exactions, or is there a, a movement into this space already that you all are highlighting in this article? So I think the answer depends a lot on what municipality or local government you're talking about. And I think that one of the strengths of our article is that it doesn't need to be one size fits all. That is, this is a tool that we think is available to local governments, and we're not proposing that local governments be required to impose these. In answer to the specific question, though, do local governments need some kind of incentive? Well, as I said, it depends on the local government, but there are many local governments um, that are already imposing impact fees and exactions for any number of reasons. And at the most general level, if you give a local government the power to extract money from developers as part of the development process, I don't think it actually takes um, a whole lot of imagination to understand why there are a number of local governments who would find that very appealing. Uh, and of course, the other uh, um, piece here is that many local governments are actively cultivating their reputations as green municipalities or municipalities that care about the environment. And this would be very, very consistent with that overall approach. And, and certainly many municipal governments are motivated by those kinds of identity-oriented considerations. Think, for example, about the new election of a mayor in Knoxville uh, and a focus on climate issues as being part of uh, her agenda for the city. Um, in addition, I think local governments might be motivated not only by capturing something from the developers, but capturing something from the utility planning process. Part of our argument is that utility planning process might allow a few firms focused on the supply of energy to capture rents from consumers. And that's occurring outside of the municipal government. Uh, the municipal government might be able to capture some of those rents and return them locally. And then in terms of uh, the mechanics of these energy exactions, in that portion of the article, you write properly aggregated data about house size, region, building material, and so forth makes it possible to predict quite accurately the energy usage of any proposed development and then price that increase through an impact fee or other exaction. So 
Uh, my question is, where can local governments expect to gather this data about housing sizes, building materials, energy consumption rates, and costs to make sure that they're accurately pricing these energy exactions? So I can answer the first part of that question, then I'll ask Jim to answer the second part of that question. When it comes to predicted energy consumption of different development, that data is readily available uh, in multiple places online. It's perfectly easy to find. Um, and the important point to remember, of course, is that local governments are often already receiving information from developers about a lot of aspects of the development process. It's not as though this is an information exchange uh, uh, that doesn't already occur. So we're simply uh, including some additional elements in that information. As Chris mentions, information is already being presented to local governments. Um, when the city of Nashville approved a package for Amazon to come to Nashville, Amazon made representations about a variety of different things. And one of the things it made representations about was the climate impact of the energy it would be using and its climate-related goals. How Nashville holds it to account for this is a different question, and that's part of what I think energy exactions might uh, be able to improve. Um, in addition, if a local developer makes presentations about building a hotel, uh, apartment complex downtown, uh, uh, a residential development on land that's currently being used for agriculture uses. Representations are made about a variety of things, and sometimes those representations are made about energy. Um, right now, most of the information about energy use, energy impact, the cost of various energy resources, most of that information is being developed, used, and presented in a energy planning process that occurs outside of the municipal government um, decision-making apparatus. And it's our hope that by encouraging local governments to enter into the conversation, we'll encourage them to independently develop better data. Uh, and they are the ones who are closest to the actual uses of energy. So ideally, they will have as good of information as any regulator would with respect to a particular community and its energy uses and the costs associated with those. So lastly, it sounds like the, the motivation is potentially there for municipalities and the information is there potentially for municipalities. So what, what is required of local governments to sort of add this energy exaction option into their permit approval process, their rezoning process, things like that? So the answer to that depends a little bit, again, on the state in which uh, the municipality is located. But in many places, in fact, all that's required is a municipality adopting an impact fee schedule as a matter of a local ordinance or local law. Sometimes exactions are negotiated on an ad hoc basis, development by development. That's not our proposal here. Our proposal is to focus instead on legislated impact fees at the local level. And all that's required is passing an ordinance. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Charlie and Professor. So now that we understand the proposal, it's, it's time to do what lawyers do best, and that is ask a lot of questions about the legal implications of the proposal. And for that, I'm going to hand it over to Connor Farley. Thank you, Professor Bregan. I want to start by uh, asking about how these exactions fit into the current legal structure. Do municipalities have the authority to implement these exactions under current state law? 
So in about 24 states, we think municipalities have the power right now to implement these exactions without anything else. As you undoubtedly know, um, most local governments in this country exercise what's called home rule power. That is, they have the power uh, to regulate um, as delegated to them by the states. Now, the form of that delegation varies a lot state by state. So in some states, local governments have broad power simply to, imp it, to impose impact fees along the lines we are suggesting. In other states, however, impact fee legislation by the state circumscribes the kinds of fees and the purposes of the fees that local governments are allowed to impose. In those states where energy is not expressly included, we think that, in fact, state enabling legislation would have to be passed or amended to give local governments that authority. But again, in 24 states at least, we think local governments have that power today. Great. And what kind of political obstacles are there to enacting this kind of clarifying legislation in states that have these enabling statutes? Well, this all occurs against the backdrop of the existing regulatory regime for energy planning and regulation. And there are existing statewide regulatory bodies. So you'd imagine a state public utility commission might see this as a threat to their turf or their regulatory um, um, initiatives. Um, so that could be one existing institution that's opposed to this. Of course, existing uh, suppliers or utilities who are regulated th at the state level might also uh, be opposed to this. Um, on the side of those supporting it, though, um, uh, there might be a momentum in favor of decentralization, and especially, I think, in um, states where there are large urban areas, um, you can imagine local governments having a strong uh, lobby uh, initiative and being able to uh, um, uh, 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 support uh, this kind of legislation, particularly as a way of putting a competitive pressure on the existing regulatory apparatus to the extent it falls short in energy planning. Kind of changing gears here, uh, another potential obstacle to the implementation of energy exactions are preemptions by state public utility laws. What kind of conflicts could energy exactions face with the currently enacted laws? Well, I've just described some of the political opposition uh, that might be imposed from that existing uh, regulatory apparatus. But as you point out, there could also be legal challenges. Um, I think the legal challenges are likely overstated. The primary legal challenge would be that, well, local government, by getting involved in this, um, you're effectively playing the regulatory task that the legislature has assigned to the State Public Utility Commission, which makes decisions about energy resources and approving new energy projects, and which also sets the prices of energy and retail customer rates. And we argue in the article that this doesn't interfere with state siding. It's not about the issue of where you build uh, the energy resource. That's a land use decision that needs to be made. Um, and we'll need to have debates and conversations about where to build uh, energy resources. But this is about who bears the cost of uh, those uh, new, um, um, uh, that new um, source of energy supply. Uh, this also doesn't interfere with the setting of price uh, by energy, so it's uh, by, by energy regulators. So it's not a traditional public utility regulation in a way that steps on their jurisdictional turf. Um, I think that part of the way we can frame our understanding of this is, as I mentioned, a lot of communities have contracted out energy uh, supply decisions. 
when we think of municipal governments that haven't contracted out municipal um, uh, energy supply decisions, we think of the traditional municipal utility um, in which you have public ownership of the grid and of energy supply. And that's a very expensive thing to do. Communities have to borrow money to municipalize the energy grid. It's also politically a very difficult thing to do. A voter um, approval of, of uh, municipalization typically has to occur. And these debates are going on right now in California with PG&E. But what we're proposing is a middle ground that creates a point of entry for local governments in the energy planning and supply uh, discussion without committing that local government to buy up the grid and own the resources itself. So as students who have taken property or regulatory state will recognize, these exactions also happening as the background of the takings clause and the Nolan Dolan Kuntz trilogy of cases. Could you give a background of these, uh, these tri this trilogy of cases and comment on the constitutional obstacles of energy exactions? Absolutely. So this, <laughs> this requires a little bit of a deep dive into some of the nitty gritty of a very, very strange area of law. Uh, but you're absolutely right to identify uh, Nolan, Dolan, and Kuntz as relevant cases. I should point out that every state, almost every state, has a, a state constitutional law analog to those trio of cases. So I'll talk about this as, in terms of the federal law, but there are state constitutional laws that will operate in largely the same way. So the basic idea is this. These cases are applications of what's called the unconstitutional conditions doctrine, which truly is one of the strangest constitutional law doctrines. Uh, and there are a lot of choices in that regard. <laughs> and the idea, though, is, is this, that while the government, a government is free to say no to someone, it can't condition a yes on something that is unconstitutional. In the land use context, what that means is that in, in all of these cases, the government is free to deny building permits, to deny rezonings, to deny the sorts of things that developers are asking local governments for in order to build. What a local government can't do is condition its approval on something that is unconstitutional. Now, what makes a condition unconstitutional? This is where Nolan and Dolan and Kuntz come in. And what these cases say is that an exaction is unconstitutional if it is not related to and proportional to the burden that the development will impose on the local government. So think about it this way. If I want to build, I don't know, a four-story small multifamily house somewhere, and I ask the government for permission, the government cannot say, we'll only let you do that if you build a new power plant. Right? That simply would not be proportional to the burden that the development is imposing. However, right, if, the, if the exaction is related to and proportional to the impacts of the development, right, then the exaction is perfectly permissible. The question here then, now that we have it framed, is whether our proposal for energy exactions will result in exactions that are related to and proportional to the burdens of the development. 
And that, of course, depends a little bit on how they're structured. They have to be priced correctly. Governments get a fair amount of deference in this regard. But the, the biggest challenge, I think, as a constitutional matter, is the possibility of a jurisdictional mismatch. That is, a local government may be asking a developer to pay for the energy burdens that are spread over the entire region served by the power company. But here, if you look at the cases closely, I don't see that as a meaningful limitation on a local government's power to impose an exaction. So long as the exaction is sufficiently related to the overall burdens of the development on the power grid, I think it satisfies, in fact, easily satisfies constitutional scrutiny. Could I add uh, something uh, uh, to this? I, I think everything Chris has said about the law is spot on, and he, of course, is the takings uh, expert here. But I think about this from the perspective of energy regulation and the current approach we have to matching benefits and burdens as we decide where to build new energy resources when they're needed uh, and the like. And I think part of our argument here is that while this is a challenge uh, under the unconstitutional conditions uh, argument, um, energy exactions is more likely to lead to a matching of benefits and burdens with growth in communities than the current approach. And the current approach does a poor job of matching benefits and burdens. And there's often that mismatch occurring at a different level of government, often at the level of state government and occurring through energy regulation. And interestingly, at this level of the government, we don't even have this kind of a doctrine. We don't have this kind of local land use review. We have a more deferential um, um, uh, constitutional review of um, the regulatory takings occurring there. So as far as political risk is concerned or concern that these municipalities will face expensive litigation, you see this as a solution um, to those concerns? Uh, yes, uh, I don't think that local governments will face substantial litigation risk here. Um, and there's a real question whether Nolan, Dolan, and Kuntz even apply to legislated exactions as opposed to ad hoc negotiated um, fees. Uh, so as long as local governments are adopting an ordinance that prices these exactions as a, on a kind of schedule, we don't think there's a meaningful risk. Um, and just kind of to wrap up, these energy exactions um, are imposed or taken by the municipality, um, but these developments are going to run across multiple municipalities, the energy provided by these developments. Uh, so what is the normative argument for allowing local exactions that benefit the municipality when these developments are going to burden an energy system that runs much larger? So as a first pass, let me say this. The purpose of energy exactions and their real power and promise as we see them is not to provide more money to local governments, but is instead to encourage developers not to increase demands on the energy grid in the first place. In which case, it's not a kind of extortion from developers to get fees for a single local government. If you price the energy exactions by the anticipated kilowatt hour demand of a development, then developers can avoid these exactions by reducing that demand, either by building solar panels um, or adopting other kinds of building uh, approaches that minimize demand. So in our view, 
the best possible outcome of our approach is that no exactions are ever actually paid because developers are simply uh, choosing to reduce the energy demands up front. I think the question you pose is a really good one, and it's premised on the idea that we have an existing energy system that runs across multiple municipalities. And I think part of the challenge and part of the problem that we have to confront as we transition towards a decarbonized grid is whether the balance we've struck in the design of the grid um, on a regional basis, on a basis such that it runs across all these municipalities and all the burdens are shared, whether that's the right balance and whether the balance ought to be focused on a more decentralized model in which the burdens are borne by those who are creating the burdens in the first place. And maybe we've erred too much on the side of trying to spread the system uh, regionally or on a statewide basis and too much away from a more localized approach in which local communities not only uh, take pride in um, uh, the energy uh, system, but in which they see themselves as having an obligation in making sure that they do things responsibly for their community's energy needs and to meet those needs. Well, this really is such an interesting proposal, and I want to give you a chance if there's any other comments you want to make before we wrap up. Just want to thank you for recognizing how great our article is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is really great. And, uh, and in fact, in your article, you note that you're presenting a unique, pragmatic, and valuable opportunity. And I think that is exactly right. That is precisely what we're looking for with Alpar. And so we thank you for writing the article. Um, this article will also be presented at the Environmental Law Institute in Washington, D.C. in April at the annual Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review Conference. Um, in addition to the professors, we will have policymakers and practitioners who will comment on the proposal. And then in August, the shortened version of the article, along with comments, will be published as part of a special issue of the Environmental Law Reporter. If you want to learn more about the conference, the publication, or the other articles we selected this year, some of which may also be discussed in podcasts, please visit ELI's LPAR website at ELI.org. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.